Welcome back. I am here with Alex Schwartzman, who is a writer, editor, and translator. Alex, welcome. Hi, thank you. So I want to start with just your background. So for folks who are unfamiliar with you, if they've been living under a rock in the last 10 years, tell, tell us a little bit about your background, just bio, where you're from, and then how you got into the writing business. Sure. Uh, so I was born in the Soviet Union, and I came to the United States as a refugee in 1991. Didn't speak a word of English. Uh, certainly didn't expect that one day I would be writing uh, fiction at anything resembling a publishable level. And so because of that, I also didn't start writing until I was well into my 30s. But I've, I'm a lifelong science fiction fan. I devoured books since I was, well, you know, science fiction books since I was about 10, 11 years old. Grew up on this stuff and have always, always wanted to tell my own stories as well as always continued reading voraciously. So when I finally, finally tweeted my fear and my reluctance and started writing, I was surprised that my the very first story I wrote sold. And so did the second one. And... Uh, I was like, hey, this stuff is easy. And then I realized that like I'm selling to these tiny, low-paying markets where like seven people will read my story. So I set my goals higher immediately. And I said, I'm not doing, I'm not selling anything to anything to any place but a pro markets anymore. And then I realized how hard it was. So I had to actually work a little bit and get better until I finally had my professional sale. And you know. 10, 12 years later, I've sold over 120 original short stories. They've been translated into a dozen languages. I have several novels out, and I've done all sorts of other stuff, like editing anthologies, translating from Russian into English. And all of this, while being a huge fan and somewhere inside my head, just going, I can't believe I fooled everybody into like thinking I'm a fellow professional and uh, they let me hang out with them and uh, be a part of all these conventions and events and, 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 you know, talking to me in their YouTube channels and stuff. What was the first story you sold at a professional rate, which magazine or anthology? T tell me a little bit about that. It was daily science fiction. And the story was called spider song, uh, which is still available on their website. They've been going strong for 12 years. They just recently announced that they're going to go on a hiatus at the end of this year, which is unfortunate because it's so great to have a market that's been this consistent for this long. I mean, 12 mm -hmm. years is like centuries in uh, short fiction market time. And Spider Song was a story that was plural, multiple, you know, plural first person present tense which is something that's really, really difficult to pull off in fiction. Uh, but I, one of the great things I love about short stories, and especially with flash fiction stories, is that you get to experiment with all these different techniques and voices and modes of storytelling that would be very hard to pull off at novel length. So I have written all kinds of these high wire act stories that are usually very short, but I got to play with epistolary formats and the present tense and second, you know, you know, second person, all this, all this type of stuff. So, you know, it it it's been really fun. And daily science fiction opened to submissions before the magazine even started around the same time when I started writing. So I've been submitting to them for about a year before I broke through into that market. And they published about a dozen of my stories over the years. So I oh, wow. kept sending them stuff because. I really enjoy the, the stuff they put out and, and, and enjoy working with them. And just uh, like I did write a fair amount of Flash earlier in my career, and they were definitely one of the best Flash markets out there. Now, how long had you been writing before you were able to break through into a professional market? About a year. That's really good, actually. For most well, people out there, like that's exceptional. I had a huge leg up, and I started writing fiction at that age, but I had already been writing nonfiction for many years. I've written, you know, like game materials. I've written event coverage for, uh, you know, I used to be a competitive gamer. So I wrote event coverage for tournaments. I had a couple of columns in printed magazines. And so I knew how to string words together. It just wasn't fiction. So there's a lot of stuff that I had to relearn. So I think that's in, in many ways that's responsible for me getting you know, some professional sales a lot faster than other people. So do you think any 
skills translate well from nonfiction writing to fiction writing? I think some people would argue that they're almost two completely different things in some sense. Absolutely, they do. I think that there's a really important skill of just being able to express yourself on the page. There's many other things that you need when it comes to writing fiction. That's not the only skill, but it is a base skill uh, that is a craft level skill. And what I mean by that is there's two things you need. You need talent and it's impossible to teach talent. If you don't have it, I don't care how many courses you take. I don't care if you study at the feet of Gaiman or, or, or any, like, what, what, insert famous science fiction writer here. It's not going to help. You have to have the talent. But in addition to the talent, it's not enough to just have talent. You also have to have craft. And craft absolutely can be learned. You need to put a lot of effort into it. You need to put time to, to hone your craft, to learn all sorts of little techniques and tools that you kind of like can apply to your writing. And that's where the whole like write a million words thing comes into play. So the more you write, even if it's just stuff like college essays, if you get really good at writing college essays, which not everybody does, some people, you know, kind of hate doing it the entire way and they get through college and they forget how to do it at that point. So, but if you are good at it, it is a skill that will help you become a better writer in the long term. So you made this distinction between craft and talent. What are some of the things that you would bucket in talent that you can't learn? The easiest way to put it, I think, is that you have to be a great storyteller. If you're the kind of person who can just absolutely mesmerize a grandchild by telling them a story that you're completely making up on the spot, or if you have a room full of people that's hanging on some shaggy dog story that you're telling them in person, then you're, you probably have a talent for storytelling. And that's the foundation that you need. If you're not a good storyteller, it doesn't matter how skillful you are in the craft area, your fiction is going to be kind of lifeless. And you know, you could still probably get to the point where you'll sell a few professional, you know, make a few professional sales here and there, but you're not going to be a master. You know, that's that's again, I I I believe genuinely that it's kind of like playing music or singing or, you know, there's a lot of other things. You can learn the basics of singing, but you have to have a talent for it to, to get beyond a certain point. And for people who are just entering in or just doing their first submissions, how can you tell reasonably early? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, it's pretty easy with basketball, right? Like if you're three feet tall, it's probably not for you. But in writing, how do you tell if you have talent or not? I think that if you enjoy doing it, that first of all, there's no reason not to. You can you can still tell stories and you will still entertain some people and derive joy from it. If you don't enjoy it, there's even if you have all the talent in the world, it's not worth doing, right? Like I mean, it's it's a you know it's a version of self abuse because <laughs> you're essentially giving yourself homework for the rest of your life. You know, so unless you actually enjoy the process and enjoy the, the result, why do it, right? So, yeah, you, if you feel like it's something you want to do, give it a shot. There are a lot of resources out there. There are workshops that you can attend. There are critique groups. The worst possible thing you can do is take the opinion of your friends because your friends are on your side. They will love you and they will want to support you no matter how terrible you are. And I like to use as an example if you're hanging out with your friend and your friend starts playing the piano or the guitar you will generally enjoy it and you'll tell them they're very good but you probably mm -hmm. wouldn't pay money for a concert ticket to listen to somebody at their skill level perform you know that same music and that's right. the difference you want to get the opinion of somebody who's not invested in you already they're not your friend they may be a part of the same critique group they may be an instructor at a workshop and they can hopefully guide you and they can identify your strengths and your weaknesses and help you get better. But again, they, they don't, nobody has the magic, you know, powder that they can like sprinkle on you and say, okay, now, now you didn't have talent before, but here you go. Here's a generous helping of it. It doesn't work that way. You, you know, you have to, you, you know, if you have it, you have to work hard to develop it. Well, and then generally the market will tell you too, right? So that's the other thing. How do you recommend that people who get into the business deal with 
rejection because in my opinion there's more rejection in this business than any other business out there maybe except for with the exception of hollywood maybe you have to have an incredibly thick skin i can't tell you how many people who i believe are way more talented as writers than i am that i know who got in and they just could not cut it because the pressure was too much the amount of rejection was the rejections were too heartbreaking when you write your best story and you send it out to a magazine or an anthology and you sit in it for a year, and a year later you get like a two-line rejection note saying, no, we're not taking it. So then you have to just send it another place. And pretty soon, like you may have been submitting that same story for five years, and you don't even like it anymore at that point. So that's not for everyone. And I'm not going to lie, it's no matter how good or how talented you are, it's really tough. But there are ways to last some sting, so to speak. First of all, keep writing. Don't put all your eggs into one story. New stories, write a story a week, write a story a month, whatever whatever it is that you can get away with that, 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 that can fit your schedule. Don't mindlessly bump, pump them out either because I, unfortunately I know some writers who just have a ton of material out there, but there are things that they wrote in an hour with very little thought and that reflects in the quality of those stories. And then they just send 75 of those out on submission and start playing submission vectors within different markets. And they keep getting rejection after rejection because those stories are just not published at all. I mean, very little thought has been put into them. So the chances of them selling at a place that's worth being published at is low. So find a good balance where you're sending out work that's well polished, but at the same time that you have, you know, five, 10, 15 different stories out in submission. So you're not, so any one rejection is not going to sting as much. Yeah, because uh, there's the opposite problem where people who polish, 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 until there's nothing left. Right. There's that. But that, that's more of a workshop problem. Like if, you know, if, you, if you bring a story into a critique group, you can't just blindly listen to all the feedback everybody gives you because it's going to just, at the end, if you, you do it enough times, it's going to completely wash off anything that's original and interesting about your story because somebody's not going to like it. And you're going to have this generic right. thing. So I always tell people, you want to listen for two things when you're at a critique group. One is when a whole bunch of people agree with each other on something because and they're all independently of each other. They're not piling on you because, because everybody's in the room hearing each other speak. But if they've independently arrived at the same problem that they found in your story, then they're probably right. And the second time you want to listen to them is when you say something and the light bulb goes over your head and you go, oh. That sounds exactly right. I actually see the problem now and I know how to fix it. Other, other than that, you can pretty much ignore what they're saying because everybody's going to have a different way in which they're going to want to fix your story. And I actually have a, a perfect anecdote to go with this. So early in my career, I attended a workshop called Viable Paradise, which mm-hmm. I speak very highly about. It's a great workshop with lots of professional editors and authors who, who provide instruction. And the way it's a workshop you have to qualify for. So you send in a story or, or you send in a novel fragment, usually a chapter. And if you like it enough, then you get to go. And it's limited to, I think, 32 people or so or per year. So I send in a short story and I got into this workshop and everybody had a different idea about what I should do with the story. All the instructors have completely different and often uh, opposing opinions on how to fix it. My fellow attendees had some thoughts on the story as well. And when I came back from the workshop, I loved it. I I learned a lot there. But as far as the feedback on the particular story that we're talking about, I had no idea what to do with it. So I just shelved it. I said, you know what? I'm going to put it away for a couple of months. And I'm not going to look at it right now because I don't know which of these luminaries I should listen to since they're all telling me different things. And while the story was literally in my desk, I got an email from my president who's read it previously. And he's like, hey, remember that story you showed me? Do you have anything else that you've written in that universe that hasn't been published yet? And I said, well, that story hasn't been published yet. He's right. like, great. I'm going to buy it for this new magazine I'm starting called Galaxy's Edge. He, so, he, didn't, he didn't even see it yet? Or did he? Well, did he, he, read, have just... he has read okay. it. But he's read the version, the same version that all of these instructors have read. And he didn't want any of those changes. He believed in the story as it was. Right. And so the, in the end, he said he's buying it anyway. I'm like, well, hey, I went to this workshop. And do you mind if I just change some line by line stuff? Because they, you know, they made some good points there. And she said, change whatever you want, send me the new version, and I'll read it. So the only changes I made were line by line edits, where I just made the the, the language, the, you know, the text of it stronger. 
And the story was in the inaugural issue of the magazine and ultimately became the basis for my novel, for, for, for The Meddling of Flip, which is my most recent novel that came out. So, and that story, like I said, every, every instructor, and they all know what they're doing. They all have many years of experience, but every instructor is not, is, they're not going to teach you how you should write your story. They're going to teach you how they would have written the same story. And so you have to find which of that advice works for you and which of that advice works for them, but may not necessarily work for you. And it uh, takes a little bit of a spine because certainly you know, you have somebody who is an award-winning or a, or, or a best-selling author, and certainly they know what they're talking about. But ultimately, you want to establish your voice and not copy theirs. Now, let's talk about the transition from short stories to novel writing. Now, did you start with short stories and then transition to novels? And if so, what was that process like? How long did it take? So when I started out, I did not know a single science fiction writer or was not a member of fandom in any way, other than just I was a guy who would walk into a bookstore or go on Amazon and buy a whole bunch of books. So I was exactly the person that we all want, the customer. And I didn't know how to, if I wrote a novel, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I wouldn't know if it was any good. So I came up with this brilliant idea of, hey, I'm going to write a short story and I'm going to send it to magazines. And if they buy it, then that shows me that I can actually write. And of course, at the time, I knew of exactly three magazines, and you could probably guess it was the, the three printed digests that existed. Analog, Asimov's, and the magazine of science fiction, yeah. or fantasy I, and science fiction. I didn't even know about any other magazines. So when I wrote my first story, I went online and I started researching, and I found this entire world, online magazines and smaller presses and all this other stuff. And so that's how my journey began. And my once I started selling the short stories, writing short stories is kind of like popcorn. You can't just have one or two. So I was addicted to it. I just kept going and writing short stories because it was easy and it was fun. And it was, in a way, instant gratification. Because even if it takes years for the story to actually get published, you could finish it and you could show it to people. And you could get yeah. a pat on the head and like, hey, this is a good story. I enjoyed reading it. Or something. So, By the way, this is why I highly recommend that new authors start with short stories because again take i always take the cynical approach but you fail faster right yeah. you can figure out what works and what doesn't whereas if you commit yourself to a you know a hundred thousand word novel and it doesn't sell like you spent you probably spent a year or more writing that thing and if it doesn't sell that's a pretty big and which in in most cases it won't sell because it's you know, very difficult to do unless you self-publish it. But that can that can really discourage you to the point where you just stop writing. That's, so anyway, sorry to interrupt. I well, just I, wanted I, to put I, that I, up there. I'm a slow writer. And so for me, my first novel took me something like four years to write. And mm-hmm. I got a lot faster since then, but I'm still a slow writer. Even even at my current speed, it would probably take me six to nine months to produce a novel at best. So I can't do like a novel in two or three months like some other people. For me, for me, it it depends, right? So like if I know there's an odd, like if I if someone says, Hey, I need a short story from you to go for this anthology in a month, mm-hmm. I can do it. No problem. I could probably be done in two weeks because I know there's a market. For me, the uncertainty is what causes things to take. Well, I'll give you another example. I had an editor reach out to me and say, Hey, do you have any novel ideas? I said, Here's five. <laughs> Which one do you like? This one. Okay. Like I found that like if if I had a contract to write two books a year, I could do it easily. But if I don't have a contract, but I have interest, I'll write it faster. So I, you know, again, I'm you know about 80% through that book in about eight months. Now, if I had a contract for it, it would be done by now. But yeah, it just depends on the person. Anyway, I didn't mean to make it about me. I wanted to no, no, that, give people well, an example. It's absolutely valid. And I, I'm the same way. If I have a deadline, I can meet it, whatever that deadline is. I may be crying while I bang on my keyboard, but like in that meme, but uh, but it's going to get done. And I went, my first novel took like five years to write. My second novel took maybe two years. And I just, you know, I just finished my third novel and that took like maybe nine months or less. But that's because I already knew that, that like, publisher was waiting for that book 
Yeah. So, so that, that makes a big difference, right? And it gives you the confidence boost. And the same thing is true for short stories, by the way. When you're invited to write for something, first of all, yes, it's not a guarantee that, that the editor may still reject it. If, if That's it's right. And it's perfectly okay. But your odds are just insanely higher than if you're writing to, to an open submission window where, you know, they get maybe a thousand stories and they're going to buy five of them, right? But, but an editor will solicit 30 stories and buy 20 of them or more. So your odds are already good because they're not going to solicit the story from you if they haven't read your work. Yeah, I would say if I solicit a story from you, it's 80 to 95% that you're going to get published. For me, it's probably 65% because, yeah. and I, but I tell people straight up, I tell them, look, you know, look, it is not a guarantee that you're going to sell me the story. You have excellent chances, but it's ultimately, uh, I don't care if you're a New York Times bestseller. I don't care if you, you know, like how many Hugos are on your mantle. If I don't like the story, I'm not going to buy it. And yeah. I have, there's an integrity to being an editor that. Uh, well, yeah, now to be fair, like if, if you put submit a story and it's, you know, 75% there, like I will, as an editor, I will. Uh, and, and, and again, most, many editors won't do this, but I'm just saying it like, just putting it out there. In fact, I'm worth there's one story right now that I got, and I'm not going to say who or whatever, that from a storytelling standpoint, it's good, it's good enough. But from a craft standpoint, I am literally going through and you know rewriting, you know, without changing the story, but the uh and again, this is very atypical of an editor, I think. But I, I will help. <laughs> Well, but that's, but that, but that, like the difference between your 65 and my 80 to 95 is that I will heavily edit stories that aren't, you know, that, that are, that are almost there, but they're not there because of, of like writing quality. What I but would, I'm not going to publish, I'm not going to publish something though. Like if I were, if I send this back to the writer and they're like, no, 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 I don't like any of these edits, I'll be like, okay, like <laughs> I'm not going to buy your story. It's not good enough. It's the opposite. If, I, yeah. If I see that the writing itself is weak, I'm not going to rewrite the story. I'm just going to reject it because the, that's the most important part. I can't fix your writing for you because then it becomes my writing. And, no, you know, like I don't want to publish yeah. me. I want to publish you. So so if I see that the writing itself is weak or, or that just the story doesn't come together, it's done. But what I will do is if there is clear path to where I say, okay, the story generally works, but the ending doesn't but I have an idea for an ending. I will share that idea with the author and see if they like it. But if they do like it, they, they're welcome to use it, but they're the ones rewriting their ending. If the pacing doesn't work, you know, I can tell them, okay, like this is, you know, so essentially it comes down to, is there an easily identifiable problem or are the, are the issues with the story deep enough where it's going to take multiple rounds of rewrites, a lot of work, and I can't do that because... yeah working on seven other projects, you know, while I'm doing yeah. this. Mine mostly has to do with language, right? So if like everything else is working, but the language is clunky, that's where I make heavy edits. Like I don't make edits in the storyline. I don't like if, if, if that part of this, like if it's, I think I'm much more, more encompassing when it comes to storytelling. Like I'll throw, I'll throw craft, like things that you, that you consider talent, like I'll, but separate from craft, mm -hmm. I'll throw, you know, some of the, like some of the craft, the craft is okay, but I guess you would say the third category is just language and writing. That's where I get, you know, I will, like, if I'll get a story. I'll be like, I, like, I just need to line by line, like rewrite. That's kind of where I get involved. Whereas otherwise, if I didn't have time, the story would just be rejected. I feel like every editor, just like every writer has their strong, like the, the parts of their strongest at. And I feel like mine is that I'm a strong story mechanic, right? So I can see the, the plot and I can kind of go, okay, well, this is this is what's working. This is a through line that, that works. This is where this is where things kind of fall apart and this is how you can fix it. So a lot of my edits pertain more to the plot. Like, yes, I'll do some, I'll, I'll make suggestions on certainly on line by line level, every editor will. But, but it's the, those plot things, if I see a clear path of how things can be fixed, if I don't see yeah. it myself, then what can I tell the writer, right? I'm going to say, I fix it, but I don't know how. You know, so that, that that's where it could become a rejection. Or if I see that, like, the only way to fix the story is to completely just write a new story, basically, with the same idea. 
I don't want to put them through that because the A, there's no guarantee that I'm going to like the second story. And B, it's just a, a tremendous amount of additional work. So I yeah, if the, if the plot doesn't work for me, it's rejected. Like I don't even uh, now if like you, I see like a way for it to end slightly differently, but everything else is good. I won't reject it. I'll make that recommendation, but I, but I don't try to be too prescriptive. I'm like, Hey, here's one way it could, it could end. And the other thing too, is on the front end, I also try to, I mean, you, you went through this process with me. I, I, I try to get a log line so that at the very end of the process, I don't have six stories on Russians in California, right? I had one story on Russians in California and that was from you. And then that way you can avoid that also that that painful rejection where it's like, sorry, I have I already have six stories on dragons. I can't I can't take a seventh. And this right? has happened to me on the randomest things too. I mean I, I had a sports anthology that I was writing for and I wrote them a funny wolf story. And then the last minute, they got a headliner who changed his mind and also wrote a ghost story. And they're like, well, we don't want two ghost stories. I'm like, well, all right. So I ended up selling it somewhere else and uh, it did well, but but it still stings a little bit. So Well, uh, yeah. And it's, by, by the way, it's like a failure on the part of the editor to take, you know, get these things out in advance. Now, if somebody gives you a log line and they yeah. turn in a golf story when they submit, when they said they were going to do a football story. Then if you reject it, that's on that's on them. That's not on you. But there are ways to mitigate the process so that you also, as an editor, you don't want to be in that position at the last minute. You're a deadline. And the guy who should have turned something in three months ago turned something in. And it's the wrong story. And you're going to miss a deadline because you didn't manage the process at the beginning. You know, you help yourself with that. So as an editor, what kind of challenges do you see with writers uh, in, in terms of just well, I'll just leave it open. Like things that you could tell prospective writers now to to avoid doing to enhance their a success at getting a story accepted and b just not 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 driving their future or prospective editor crazy. So a couple of things. First of all, start the story at the beginning. Don't don't give me the backstory. Don't give me three pages of backstory. Don't give me the three pages of what you think is beautiful description because you're not writing for the New Yorker or whoever publishes that sort of stuff. If you're writing genre, you need to hook the reader. And in this case, your first reader is going to be the editor or the slush reader or whoever is reading you, evaluating your story first. You need to hook them right away. And especially in that, that has been the, the culture in English level language fiction. It's different in some other languages a little bit, actually. But for, for, for English level fiction, there needs to be the hook where I will like, well, I need to know how this res- how, how this gets resolved. And if you don't give that to me on the first few paragraphs, something to keep me keep me reading, chances are the story is not good. I'm not going to read the story to them. And by the way, it's not because I'm mean. Every single editor, every single slush reader, the vast majority of the stories that they encounter on submission do not get read to the end. You only read as far as you need to read to know that you're not going to be taking that story. Doesn't matter if the story gets a score of a four or a five or a seven. If it's not an eight or a nine or a ten, you can just move on, and you're saving yourself time and you're saving the author time. So hook the you know hook them early, and then the story has to deliver on the promise. There's so many stories that stick with me a lot more than than these easy rejections where you just read the first two paragraphs and you're like, nope, not written up the part. The stories that really kind of hurt is where. It's really an interesting premise with interesting characters and things are happening. And, and you get to the end and you just realize that the author had absolutely no idea how to end the story. Because they, 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 they put themselves into a position where they had an interesting premise, but they themselves did not know how to resolve it. And so they just put some kind of a you know, very easy to see through patch on it. And it's not really an ending. And you're so disappointed because you, you, know, you, you were looking forward to finding out well, how how do you explain all this? And they, they and they just don't. They're like, oh, it was all a dream, by the way, or something something stupid. Yeah, well, I, I'm using a very cliched thing, which doesn't happen a lot, thankfully, these days. But you know what I mean. So you need to have an idea of what the through line is for your story, what the plot is, and it needs to have a plot. I don't care how well written it is; it can't just be a vignette. It needs to be a story, and. My suggestion is that when you sit down to write the story, and this is what I do personally, you need to know how it begins and you need to know how it ends. 
you know, with absolute certainty, you need to know how your story ends. If you don't know how it ends, don't start writing until you figure that out. That's, and to me, that really helps. And another piece of advice is if you're writing for a themed anthology or if you're writing for, you know, any, you know, any kind of a theme that you think has been any subject matter has been covered before, what is it that makes your story different? So, you know, first, you need to be widely read. You need to have read a lot of science fiction. You need to understand the roots of the genre to know that you're not just rewriting a story that's been written 20 times over and you're doing the exact same thing as has been done 20 times over. And we have categories for that. Right? One of these categories is it, it's Earth all along, right? Earth all along is a story where... Yeah, the, story tropes, is, tropes in industry speak, right? Yeah, it's a trope where by the end of the story, you realize that it was happening on Earth all along and, you know, like every, you know, oh, it's not aliens, it's just us. And by the way, I'm so clever because I fooled you and I made you think about it in a different way, except for you're not clever. Every editor has seen so many versions of that story that we're sick of it. So, so it's kind of like you could you could be clever and do something new with that, but that's what you would have to do in order to get it past a quality editor or 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 or, or any kind of a submissions person. So yeah, be different. Write something that hasn't that that everybody else hasn't written already, and just have a plan. Have a plan of how to hook the reader early and how to keep them to stick with you and stick the landing. I know it's a lot, but Again, every magazine will get hundreds, if not a thousand submissions for every story that they buy. And if you want to be that one story that they buy, you really, really have to stand out and you have to outrun all the rest of them. Yeah, just to give people a sense of that. So if your acceptance rate for solicited submissions is 65% and mine's 80 to 95%, depending on the anthology, if you submit to like an analog or the magazine of fantasy and science fiction or Asimov's, you're talking less than 1%. Is that about right? It's a fraction. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that Clark, Neil Clark posts those statistics on a monthly basis. So, you know, he's getting well over a thousand submissions and he's buying like just a couple of like, like, like four or five stories or something per issue every month. And, and in some cases, it's worse than that. So I'm just finishing. As a matter of fact, today is the last day to submit to the identified final. And we have seen, I don't have the exact number, but it's over 800 stories. I think we're getting close to 1,000 stories so far. We're going to end up buying maybe 10 of them. Yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, the rest of the slots were. So that's were, 1% right there, 10 out of 1,000. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be something along those lines. And I can't tell you how easy it is to go through that volume. I and mean, it sounds like a lot, but a huge percentage of them, I, you know, me or one of the, one, one of my associates that are helping me with this, they only need to read like the first two, three paragraphs often to just start, go, nope, and move on. Another thing is, or, or the first sentence if somebody starts with the giant was giant. Yeah, but I mean, it's not usually it's not that obvious, you know. Even the bad stories are not like cartoonishly bad. But another thing is, you know, I'm editing a humor anthology, right? And if I read the first two pages of your story and nothing even remotely funny has happened, I don't care how funny your, your story gets on page eight, right? It's not a fit for the book, so I can just reject it and move on. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if you're going to write a humor story, it needs to, in, you need to indicate that with the voice and, you know, with the tone, with the premise, with something right away. You know, don't wait, don't just give me like this vanilla science fiction story and kind of go, oh, but there's a joke at the very end. That's that's never going to fly. Yeah, which makes sense, right? Because there's some people who write a story, it's just a build up to one big joke. And by then it's too late because everything needs to be funny or not everything, but you know what I'm saying. There needs to be enough humor in it. And also... Like the, people will come up with like a very funny premise for their story, and then they will trade, tell it completely straight. Like they'll just like tell it that time. And that doesn't work. Like you need right. to be whimsical in your voice. If you're going to tell a funny story, then it needs to be funny. There needs to be multiple aspects of funny to it. Like the premise needs to be humorous. The telling, like the way in which you tell the story needs to be whimsical as well. Like, I mean, look at Terry Pratchett, look at Douglas Adams. Those guys, I mean, they could take a relatively mundane subject or even a horrific subject. I mean, if you think about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? The opening chapter of that story is an apocalyptic horror. It's yeah. incredibly funny because of the way it's being told. So that's that that's something to uh, that's something to look to if you're gonna if you're gonna write, you know. But of course, that advice applies 
specifically to UFO, and we're open like once every couple of years. So, you know, for other publications, you don't necessarily have to be funny. And a lot of them prefer that you wouldn't be funny, unfortunately. So, but they will still need you to have a unique voice that grabs you by the short tails and doesn't let you go until the story is over. Like, I need to keep reading that story. The best stories that I encounter in Slush are sometimes stories that I know I'm not going to buy because they're not funny enough. And I don't have any free time whatsoever, but I'm still going to invest that extra 10, 15 minutes and finish reading it because I want to know what happens. Yeah. And you, when you give the rejection for those, you let, do you let, you let the author know. Absolutely. Right? Those are the ones that will get the, the personal note or maybe even a suggestion of like, hey, you know, some of my friends, I did these other magazines. Maybe you should send it to them or like this, 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 this story might be a good fit for Cast of Wonders because it reads younger, or the story may be a great fit for daily science fiction because it's a flat fiction piece of the kind that I think they would like. It's not a guarantee of anything on the edge of those markets. It's just a, a suggestion from somebody who has been selling stories to those places for many years. And so have some, at least some experience, uh, some success rate with that. Now, going back to novels, the transition from writing short stories to writing novels, how did you approach that? And, you know, what are some of the things that helped you from writing short fiction to what are some of the things that may have retarded your progress in some way? So I had so much experience and so much got myself into the short story mode. It was difficult for me. My very first novel includes several short stories. Now, they were not published anywhere except for one of them, but they were short stories initially. And it started out, so I wrote this book called The Remittance Crown. The elevator pitch for that book is it is a story of Daenerys Targaryen done right in a single volume with a definitive ending. This woman starts out a hero doing all the right things for all the right reasons. By the end of the book, she is the worst villain in her world. So it's kind of like the, the, the setting of Game of Thrones plus the storyline of Breaking Back. And I, that story started out as a short story. I wrote the very end first. I wrote the story of this conqueror who has been basically a Genghis Khan type person who spent their entire life, or Alexander the Great, or whoever you want to use as an example, who spent their entire life conquering. And they're done. They conquered the entire world, which happens to be this one continent. I mean, there's just one continent in that particular world. They're done. They conquered everything. So the only choice they have left is to rule. But she doesn't know how. She has never had to rule in peacetime, which is a completely different process from, from being a warlord. And so there's all these challenges and things don't go well. And that story really stayed with me. I didn't sell it as a short story because I started thinking about it more and more. And I was like, well, what would make a person want to wake up one morning and want to just go and kill people just to be a conqueror, just to be to be that Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Napoleon type person? And so I started coming out, coming up with the Redeemer's origin story. And by the end of it, uh, it, this was this book right here. And like I said, I ended up writing parts of it, like as essentially short stories. But then I did hopefully a good job integrating them into the book to where they felt like an integral part of a whole rather than rather than standalones. My second novel also started out, and I touched on that early, started out as a couple of published short stories, and I incorporated them into the opening of the novel. But the, the, the main character kind of grabbed me by the shirt tails and told me to write more about him. And, you know, his name, and he's sort of a magical cop, cop, except for he has no magic of his own. So he's Batman living in a world of like superheroes and supervillains that all have magic and he can only rely on other people's magic on magical artifacts and stuff like that and that's my current book that's that's the middling affliction okay earlier this year and i explained this book as the dresden files meets american gods in brooklyn so that was my second novel and also had two short stories incorporated in the very beginning of it and the sequel to this book, which is my third novel, was the first book that I wrote from the beginning to end without any short stories involved. It was an actual straight up honest novel. So I think I'm a recovering short story writer who is slowly becoming a novelist. Do you find it difficult to write longer form? Because so personally, what I found is when you write a little, a few too many short stories, your writing is much more 
terse, I guess is not the right word, but it, it, it it's much more succinct, right? You don't waste a lot of time. You only focus on what's important. But when you take that to a novel, when you have a lot more room to elaborate, it's it's harder to to write like a lot of words, right? I mean, you you find the same issue or do you find other absolutely, issues? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that there's your writing muscles kind of atrophy when you're doing uh, novels versus short stories because you have all the space and you can go on the sides and kind of add additional material. And when you write the, your next short story, all, all of a sudden you find that you're running out of space because the editor wants something up to, you know, 5,000 words or 6,000 words. And you're like, oh, crap. You know, I, I can fill that up pretty easily now, whereas somebody who's writing almost exclusively short stories will never even run into that problem because they they just know how to pack as much punch as possible into as many few words as possible, as few words as possible, rather. So that's it's a different skill set. And writing flash fiction is actually the hardest of, of them all because you literally have to sketch out a story in under a thousand words. And it still has to be a story. It can't just be a vignette. I mean, it, that, that's not what flash fiction is about. You still want to tell a complete story in very, very, very few words. And only a small handful of writers know how to do that well. And some people never learn. I mean, it's not because they're bad writers. It's just because, you know, if you started out writing novels, I can't conceive of Brandon Sanderson sitting down and trying to write an entire story in under a thousand words. It's just not how his mind works at this point, I imagine. Right, right. Yeah, I, I can't conceive how people can just write that much, that many words, and without having the means. Like me, it's good. I, I guess you have like kind of you look at like the Robert Jordans of the world, right? Where they spend paragraphs and paragraphs on like women's clothing, yeah. and it's just like I don't care. <laughs> like you won't see that in my writing. Okay, I I tend to write novels that are just filled with plot and dialogue and they don't dwell on anything to look i i've been told numerous times for each of my novels that hey this 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 plot could have been a trilogy and i'm like yeah it could have but not i i want to keep you moving along i want I, like i have a short attention span and i want to write to for the readers who also have a short attention span right like and and in, I, if i can keep them engaged then i've done my job now let's talk about translation. How did you get into that business? And and just well, we'll see where this takes us. <laughs> Entirely by accident. Uh, I like I said, I was a fan first, and I was already a successful short story writer and published you know published writer when I did my very first translation. And I did it because I simply wanted to geek out about that particular story with my fellow English speakers who could not read it in the original Russian. And I found that they liked it. And I also found the process to be completely different from writing my own stuff. While I could take advantage of the toolkit that I've mentioned earlier, of like being able to like put words together, it was a completely different set because now it was more like almost solving a Sudoku puzzle because I had to take all these layers of meaning and all of these cultural references and, and, and you know, subtext in a different language and in a different culture and figure out a way how to reassemble it into something that would work for the, the for, you know, from the source culture to the target culture. And it's like solving a puzzle, which I love to do. So every time I translate, it just kind of, I feel like it uses a different part of my brain. I could be writing a couple of chapters or, or, or a couple of hours worth of fiction and I'm exhausted and I can't write anymore. And I can just switch over to the document and just start translating. It's a completely different part of my brain. For, for me, it's like writing versus like building a model in Excel. Exactly. It's more like building a model yeah. or painting a miniature or something like that. It's a different thing, but it is problem solving, right? And it, I did not expect, I never planned on doing it professionally, did not expect that we're not going to go anywhere. But at this point, I have translated for a major, like well, some, some of the largest video game companies in the world, uh, movie studios, TV studios, publishers. My translations have appeared in just about every major uh, science fiction short, in a short story market out there. I mean, actually, it, I, I, w w I hate to say this because I consider myself to be a writer first, but I think I'm a more successful translator than I am a writer when it comes to short fiction, to be sure, because I've had translations that like, Tor and Asimov's and Clark's World and all these other markets 
and with a much better success rate than even my own short stories because usually I send it out like one or two places in itself. How does that work? Is that more of a push or a pull? In other words, do you push these stories to the various people you sell them to, or do they reach out to you and say, hey, there's a story we heard about in this Russian market. Can you translate it for us? So at this point, people know me as a translator. And so sometimes the editors will reach out and say, hey, I'm doing an ontolo- a dragon anthology. And is there a really good dragon story that, that you can recommend? Because they don't know. They, they haven't heard about stories in the Russian market because why would they, right? Like, I mean, how many stories do you know about from French market or the Chinese market or, or anywhere else that haven't already been translated into English? So they're asking me to make that recommendation. And the reason why I've been so successful at placing these stories is that I'm relying on my skill as an editor to pick the stories that I think would work well in the year. So essentially, I am that first slush reader, right? I'm reading the stories that are being published in Russian, and I'm going, oh, this is really cool, but it's not going to work for the U.S. audience. Like, they're not, nobody's going to want to buy this. Then, you know, it's not going to, for whatever reason. And then I'll read another story, and I'm like, that is perfect. That's exactly the kind of story that I think will transcend languages and cultures and will work very well. And so... Uh, I will reach out to the author and I will ask permission to translate the story. And the way that that works is if this, I own the English language copyright, right? So as a translator, the translator owns the copyright to the translation. So it's up to me to like, send that story on submission, send it to, 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 to you or to any other editor and say, hey, do you want to buy this? And the deal that I make with the author is that any time that story sells, they get 50% of the money. So I do all the Okay. Work. So the contract is is with you as translator. I'm and the, then I'm the agent for that story. So I control the rights, you know, in the English language market. And I'm the only one who can like sell the story. The, the, the author, if they wanted to, you know, they, they could actually reach out to me and go, like, hey, these people want my story. Can we can, you know can we let them publish it? But the translator is the copyright owner. And this is not just me, it's any translator who performs a translation unless they do it as a work for hire and they transfer those rights to the publisher or, the, or to the author, they are an equal partner. So it's really important to know that because the translation is an art. It's not just a technical skill, a literary translation, I mean, not like when you're doing an air conditioner manual or something. Right. So, so the translator is an equal, is essentially a co-author of that story at that point in the target language. So in other words, the like the contract, you know, if, you, if I take the contract I sent you, I'm going to talk really mechanics here, but if I, if I take the contract I sent you, for instance, for Weird World War III, and you sold me a translated story from some other, you know, from like a Russian story that was previously published, the terms of that would be identical, except it would just say 50% of the money goes to the original author and 50% goes to you. But you own the rights. Technically, you would just pay me, and then I would pay that person. Now, I have done it every which way. Some some of the established markets have procedures for this. Some of them are even willing to send half the because it's a pain in the butt to send payment overseas, right? To somebody in Ukraine and Russia, yeah. and Belarus, yeah. uh, it's hard to send money to those places sometimes, and it's expensive to send money to those places. So a lot of the time, the market, the small market, doesn't want to deal with that. So they will just be like, okay, here's. $600, and then whatever it is between you and the author is up to you guys. And then I will figure out how to send $300, and usually we'll pay the, the, the fees to send the $300. Okay, so it's like the translation contract is effectively the same as just buying a story from you. And you are still buying first rights. So it's not a reprint. You're still buying first English rights because the story has never appeared before in English. If you buy it as a reprint later, then you're buying a reprint at the reprint rates. And then it's a much smaller amount of money. And, but again, it just gets split up between. And I've already had that happen a number of times. I've also had something called relay translation, where you would have somebody who's interested in translating the story, but they don't have a translator who is going to translate from Ukrainian to Japanese. So they will take my English my English language translation, and they will translate, translate to Japanese. And that's called a relay translation. And that usually is done with the, when the sets of languages are less common and they have less in common with each other, right? So if you're going to go like from, I, I I don't know, from like Georgian to Farsi, you may not have somebody who, a professional literary translator who works with that set of two languages, right? So if you somebody translates it from Georgian into Russian and then somebody else can translate it from Russian into Farsi, 
you know, that's a relay translation. Okay. Now, if someone wants to find works from you, A, what can they buy and where can they find it? So the easiest is to go to alexschwartzman.com and my name is right there on the screen. So that's just my, my website is my name. And it, all the, my books, my anthologies, everything is linked from there. Of course, right now, this is still very new. It came out at the end of May. So this is my number one thing to promote. It's available in print and ebook and audiobook, And so every which format you like to buy. And that helps because the publisher has already committed to, 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 to publishing book two. The sequel will come out next year, but they still haven't yet committed to book three. So unless there's solid sales, it is a business. So yeah, definitely the best way to, to support me and my writing and my translation efforts is pick up one of my books and that's the best one to get right. And you can also find that information in the d- description below. All right. Well, thank you very much, my friend. It's always a pleasure. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to see you in person again sometime soon. I saw you at LibertyCon, so it was good yes, to see you there. Thanks so much for posting me. I will probably be back there next year. So if you're coming back, at the very least, I'll hopefully see you. In, you know, If there's a backdoor way of me being able to get in, I will definitely be there. You didn't, you didn't buy the membership yet? They're, they're, very, they're very strict on that. I had to go there and like click furiously to get that, to get that membership on time. So Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have like a philosophical thing against like the the monkey, like you got to be there first. You got to be there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you know what? It's, it's, it's their party and we can, either, we can either come and play with their dolls or stay home. That's uh, you know, like if, if you were hosting a convention, you would do it different. If I was hosting a convention, I'd probably do it different too. But if we want to, if we like that convention and I think we do. Then, I think it's one of the it's 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 not it's it's one of the best if not the the best convention I've ever been to. Yeah, like it's very well run. You know, it's it was extremely fun, and that's why I'm considering going back because it, you know, it's a pain for me. It's not even a direct flight. I have to like do a convention I know. to get there. So I'm still willing to do it because it's just so much fun last year. Yeah, it's uh, it's also interesting too. Like I. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, I, I was with T.C. McCarthy. We were, I think we went to like a CVS and you're just driving around. There's in Tennessee, there's no, or there's very limited. I don't think they force you to have car inspections. So there were like, <laughs> on the road. I'm like, wow, this is freedom. <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's some good things and bad things, but there are cars that are like, like borderline falling apart, but it doesn't oh, matter. Wow. I, I didn't, I, I, I was there in a taxi going to and from the airport. So I wasn't, I was just like on the main road. So I didn't really see much of that. Yeah. So, like it's a good, there's good and bad things, right? Like in, in, in California, it's a nightmare in terms of regulation there, you know, there's, there's a lot more freedom, but there's also a cost to some of it, right? Where you have cars on the road that are like, oh. Anyway, it's good to see you, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.